Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bundjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery, who makes sophisticated elk-free drinks that still have all the taste of a good time. G&T without the tears, whiskey without the wobbles, and other delicious cocktails too. Switching the ritual instead of ditching the ritual is so much easier. Stay in high spirits, keep a clear mind, head to mondaydistillery.com for more. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, we're having a bit of a celebration. We're celebrating three things today. We're celebrating that Ben Schiller is back on the podcast. Hi Ben, how are you? Hello Danny. It's so good to see you again and have you here on the podcast being one of our most popular guests. Your podcast episodes always go a bit gangbusters so it's so good to have you here. We're also celebrating that you've finished your master's in psychology. Yeah that's cause for celebration yeah very exciting. Do master's of clinical psychology yeah so I'm now a clinical psychology registrar which is wonderful. 
That is amazing. And so you're kind of diving into private practice now, which is super cool and, and exciting for everyone listening that they can now go ahead and make bookings to see you, which is really, really cool. I'm excited for, for everyone and that opportunity. And also we're celebrating 1 million downloads we've hit mm-hmm. this week for the podcast. <laughs> Holy shit. I don't like to go on too much about numbers and stats and all that in terms of things like that, because I don't want it to be about that, but it is cause for celebration, I think. It's amazing. It's amazing. I yeah. know. Also, I wanted to just flag, obviously, our amazing sponsors, Monday Distillery, who have pretty much been with us from the start. And so what they're offering is for our listeners for the next month, so that's May and into June, a discount code of HIQA20 for 20% off any Monday Distillery yummy, yummy drinks. And I'll put the links for that in the show notes. So amazing, celebrating. Now, how are you, Ben? I'm very well, thank you. It's Sunday afternoon and looking forward to our chat and loving having completed such a large, I guess, span, seven years of study that was for me. So it's really nice to get to the end of that and yeah, just start living a bit. Yeah, it's full on, isn't it? Do you ever feel like that, just because I was talking to someone about this the other day, I don't know if I replaced my problem drinking slash addiction type stuff with learning. I've just, I've got this real obsession with learning. And when I finish something, I'm like, okay, what's next? I've got this, I can't kind of just settle without it. Do you feel like that when you started your recovery process with alcohol, is that a thing do you think for you that you sort of took up learning as a bit of an addiction or is that a bit of a dirty word for you? No, no, I think it's really valid. I'm not sure, like in the early days of the study, it wasn't quite as interesting as what it was in the latter half of the more postgraduate side of the study. But one thing I did notice, it became a big part of my recovery identity, the study. And I definitely, like in the early days, I probably wasn't quite addicted per se, but in the latter, for the last sort of three to four years, I've loved it. Like just, Mm. it's been just through, it took a lot of my attention in a good way. And yeah, the learning is exhilarating. If if you're learning something that you're enjoying, like it's a bit of a different story if it's not something that piques your interest, but yeah, when it does, it's enthralling. And so I totally relate to what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I find that too. It is really exhilarating. I love it. And I certainly don't feel ashamed by it at all, but I have just noticed that tendency. It was more because we're talking to at the start and I was saying to you, part of we're traveling around Australia at the moment and going through long patches of being completely disconnected. And I challenged myself to not read any self-help books, to not do any study and to be completely disconnected. And I noticed the Ooh, a bit of discomfort that showed up for me thinking about doing it. Once I was in the role and I was in the flow of that, I was okay and I quite loved it. But I yeah. noticed that, oh, <laughs> that's different. But it's interesting. Like it kind of makes me wonder, well, what is it about learning that that is so interesting or exhilarating if it's something we enjoy? And and I do think it, it for me anyway, it provided me with a sense of purpose. And yeah, yeah like I, I guess I was proving wrong some old beliefs I had about myself mm. uh, around my academic capacity. And I studied engineering straight out of school. So, and I wasn't particularly interested in it. You know, like I always had doubts about my abilities in that space. 
piece and it was really nice when psychology came along and it was like, oh, hang on a minute, this is, I'd love this. And what I love about this area or the profession in general, not just psychology, but the human condition is that I think forever we'll be learning about it. Like there's not mm. an end point to it. And that's mm. been a really important thing to wrap my head around because I'm not kind of working towards a goal with learning. It's just become part of my routine, my process, like who I am. And, and that's good. It's a good thing. When I went up to Bessel van der Kolk's workshop up in Brisbane, he was saying that they're always learning. There's always new things coming in and they're always researching different modalities and different things at work. And there's always, I guess, new things that they're understanding about the mind and behavior. And it's not something that just stops that we just keep on going. I'm interested in what you just said before about it became part of your identity in recovery. Could you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, look, I think for a long time when I was drinking, I was in like, I guess the corporate environment and not, I guess that's what I was in. And I don't know, like, I think I identified with someone that was always striving, but someone that was quite kind of unhappy in that space. And I stopped drinking, I needed help, had to go to a treatment center for it. And that was a pretty significant point in my life where things changed. And I knew at that point, that old identity, which was partly financial, because I was earning bucket loads of money and my wife at the time, and I could go and do pretty much whatever we wanted in terms of holidays. And, and there was ego, a lot of ego attached to it. And then I kind of got sober and clean and, and I started a fencing business, you know, like uh, as in building fences around people's houses. And there was a fairly big surrender that went with that. And I became obsessed with surfing, which was a really healthy obsession. But I I won't lie, like those two things, like the fencing business, the surfing, they didn't really give me a sense of purpose. And then when I think I was about a year sober or 18 months sober, I made the decision to go into psychology and study it. Yeah, like I, that gave me a real sense of purpose. And and it was difficult at times like because I was working and studying and we built a house and we didn't have a lot of financially. It was sort of flush for want of a better term. But we, yeah, it was it was challenging at times, but at no point did I ever think, no, I'm going to stop. Like I just had this goal to become a clinical psychologist and it took seven years. And yeah, it was like, it was like something about being sober that enabled me just to totally align with that new identity, that new purpose. This like, this is, I had some insight, like I, by going and getting help in getting sober, uh, we did a lot of group work. And I, through that process, I I was able to identify that, hang on a minute, oh, there's something here I could, I'm okay at. And then not long after that, I think I was sponsoring people in Alcoholics Anonymous and I was okay at that. And then eventually I got a job at a treatment centre as a therapist and I found out I was okay at that too. And so there are definite indicators that I was on the right path. That's the beautiful thing about sobriety is that we're clearing the decks. We give ourselves options and choices and like it's painful and scary as hell but it's hugely rewarding if we allow ourselves to to kind of open up to what comes along to us it's so amazing that time and time again i know with myself i know with ash what you're saying that people i've coached or and friends that have gone on the sober path things just start to open up whether it's that we're you know when you're in addiction or when you're drinking like your world becomes very small whether or not that when that's taken away suddenly our world becomes bigger and we start to notice more things but it's just like opportunities present and maybe it's also too you have more bravery more courage to say yes to things and 
and to kind of bravely step into this new world and new things that are presented. But just find it time and time again that people say that the big life changes happen, but just things keep presenting and opportunities present themselves over and over for people. And what do you think it is about sobriety that we see these things just sort of start to appear for us? Oh, yeah, good question. I think because we're not hiding. Yeah. I think for me it was because I wasn't hiding anymore. I wasn't being protected by the booze and I wasn't pretending anymore like that everything was okay. And And I see it in other people every day at work and there's a beautiful vulnerability that comes with these significant changes that when people make a decision to step out of a destructive behavior, you know, it's not just alcohol. People have all sorts of avoidance behaviors with anxiety and depression and but I think we stop hiding, Danny, and mm. yeah, and with that, we just open ourselves up, and sure enough, good stuff comes. It does, doesn't it? And it's so true. It's that we stop hiding, and it's like I said, I think that when we're not hiding, that our world becomes a whole lot bigger. You know, it certainly did for me. Thinking about yourself as a drinker and that guy that I can't even really imagine because I've always known you as a sober guy, but thinking about what you do now and, and the work that you're doing now and how far you've come and how different of a person you probably are to when you were drinking. Would that have ever seemed like a possibility that you'd end up doing this sort of work? What I'm getting at too is for people that are in the throes of it, that you don't know what's actually available to you. You don't know what's out there yet. I always had hope that there was Mm. something else, Mm. but I could never foresee or I could never forecast what it was I was hoping for. I definitely knew that what I was in wasn't right. And my older sister has worked in her particular profession since she was in her early 20s and she's very good at it. What does she do? Oh, she's she's an editor in a sound editor in the film industry. And she moved across to America bravely, like in her late twenties, I think it was. And wow. yeah, she she lives over there now and has done very well. And but I was always taken by her passion for what she did. It was it was her. And I remember asking her, how did you find that? And she was I don't quite remember her specific answer, but it was something along the lines of I was open to it and it came to me and I grabbed onto it and I ran with it. So I always had this hope that I would find something else, but I needed to go through the rock bottom that I went through in order to sort of make that decision to things needed to change. And so to answer your question, I couldn't have seen when I was in the throes of my addiction, I didn't think I'd live till I was 40. And to be honest, my mindset at the time was, oh gee, I'll be doing well if I live till I'm 40. I'd had a car accident. There was all sorts of stuff that was going down. And so to be perfectly honest with you, I I didn't ever go, oh, gee, it'd be nice to be a psychologist. All I was worried about was the next bottle of booze and the next bag of cocaine. But I absolutely had this desire and hope to find something different. And it started out with my immediate lifestyle of stopping boozing and getting healthy and doing a lot of the program that you deliver, Danny, is what's needed up front. And once I stabilized within that, I was able to start looking more broadly at at my purpose. And that, sure enough, that came along about a year and a half into sobriety. Unbelievable, isn't it? My God, Ben, you just think about how far you've come and God, I can't even imagine you thinking that God might not make it to 40 and just to see what you've achieved in life. And it's so true to like, without thinking too much about the big picture, obviously when you're in the throes of it, just getting through each day is an amazing, remarkable gift and it's a miracle in itself. But then as we get more space, then we can start to see 
a bit more in the horizon and what could be a possibility for us. And it's amazing. But what I love about your story is that there is always hope. And that if someone's listening to this and they're feeling like they're just, they can't break the cycle or they're too in it, there's hope for change and that it's totally possible. Like you said, that you were just worrying about the next bag of Coke or the next bottle of booze, but look at you now. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. cool. No, I'm proud of it and I don't treat it lightly. I'm just one person. There's so many people that have done what I've done and and are starting on the process and are doing what I've done. Like, I love that. I love seeing it. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? So one thing I wanted to talk to you about today, especially now that you've started private practice. So you're not necessarily working with addiction or people that have had addictions, but what I am interested in is like Gabor Mate says, it's not why the addiction, but why the pain. And so sometimes if we are in the throes of addiction, it's usually because there is perhaps something that we're trying to escape from or to soothe ourselves from. It might be anxiety or depression or a whole host of things, I guess. But usually the addiction is a symptom of something else that's going on deeper for us. And I think when we tackle our addictions or tackle our problem behaviors, usually things start to rise up. Once we've taken out the alcohol, taken off that band-aid, there's some stuff there that needs to be dealt with. So I want to talk a bit about that today, about getting therapy, which I think is so important for people to start to work through some of the stuff that's underneath the surface. So what are some of the things that you might see that show up people that might be driving addictions? One of the most important questions we can ask, and I had a boss, a psychiatrist, Dr. Tessa Cookson, and I loved it because she uh, she was the clinical director at Byron Private Treatment Centre, and I was fairly early in my therapy career, and she asked me what the driver of the particular behaviour of a client that I was talking about. And so it's a fantastic question and a vital question because I think I've shared this before. We have surface level behaviors and they're often a bit dysfunctional Mm -hmm. and maladaptive. And those surface level behaviors are usually because we can't tolerate the pain that sits underneath them. And we could work away and help people adjust their surface level behaviors like drinking. Some people lie or some people steal or or some people control, some people overwork. But these they're their surface level behaviors that are sitting on top of deeper problems or deeper concerns is a better way to put it than a problem. And usually underneath that are quite maladaptive or dysfunctional beliefs about yourself. Mm. Usually sitting underneath that is also some form of attachment pain. And what I mean by that is people have experienced parenting that sort of might not have met their needs when they were younger, not all the time, but just at certain times. And as a result of that, someone's ability to attach with other people or even to attach still with their parents or even in terms of their attachment to themselves can be quite compromised. So you've got that as well as the negative beliefs about yourself. And then for a lot of people, there's a concept of trauma. And I talk to people and they're like, no, I haven't had anything traumatic happen in my life. And the more experience I get and the more I work with people, traditionally what trauma has been known as or PTSD has been known as something to do with a car accident or sexual abuse or really, really significant shocks that people experience in their life. And then there's another concept of, I guess, small T trauma, which which we've talked about before, where someone has experienced chronic neglect or abuse, and it might have not have been a single sort of shocking event that results in flashbacks, but 
it really contributes to someone's the way their nervous system is mm. de- develops and the way it's pre-programmed and then has a, a very significant knock-on effect to, to the way that person is operating in their adult life so we've got big t trauma small t trauma but the other part of it that i, I actually think fits into the same bucket is what about when someone's marriage ends of mm. 15 years what happens when a grandparent dies that mm. was someone was really close to mm. or, or a parent? And what happens when someone loses their job and then they then become unemployed for a significant amount of time? So there's these other things that happen in people's lives that I'm finding that you might not necessarily class or classify as a traumatic event or, or small t trauma, but they, they have a similar kind of impact on someone and they become in a similar vein, a pain point that ends up driving dysfunctional behaviours like drinking. Mm-hmm. And so people are going through those things all the time, aren't they? Especially like even after COVID, like I see it all the time in people that I'm coaching that their drinking went through the roof during COVID. And I guess the trauma that they may have experienced around that or just the kind of what it meant for them to perhaps be separated from family or to be disconnected from people and how just that kind of sense of loneliness drove this drinking because they couldn't sit with that loneliness. There's all sorts of things that happen, like you say, death of a parent, breaking up with a spouse. What do you think it is about those? Is it that we don't know how to soothe ourselves so we're reaching for something that's going to soothe us? How do we stop that? Good question. Good question. Okay, I'm going to jump into a particular type of therapy that I'm using a lot, Mm -hmm. and it's called schema therapy. Mm -hmm. And schema therapy was developed by a chap by the name of Jeffrey Young, and it came off the back of years of research within cognitive behaviour therapy. And what researchers found, and this was in, I think, the early 1990s, don't quote me 100% on that, but roughly this was, was around when the research occurred. They found across the entire population like there were groups of negative beliefs that the population had that had fallen into the research cohort. And there were 18 groupings of maladaptive beliefs that people had, which were based on experiences they'd had throughout their life. Sorry, could you just give a couple of examples of some of those beliefs? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So schema therapy, the premise of it is that these groupings of belief are called schemas. So a classic schema is the abandonment schema. And the premise of each schema is that they develop because at some point in someone's life, so say, for example, I'm high on the abandonment schema, I'm not, but let's say I was, at some point in my life, and and the theory kind of articulates that it's childhood or adolescence, but I've actually found that people having adverse experiences in adulthood can also develop these schemas as well. But say, for example, I've got the abandonment schema. The story probably goes that when I was a child, my father wasn't around. One minute, the family was whole. And then the next minute, dad was gone. Mum and dad split up. This didn't happen to me, but this is the scenario that we're going with the example. And dad was gone. And I was really closely attached to dad. And then what I did as a kid was tell myself, oh, I'm the cause of that. I'm the reason why dad left. Was it, I'm not conscious of this. I'm not conscious of these thoughts. But what they're doing, like at that young age, they're starting to develop a belief system that people are going to abandon them. Okay, so that's that's the abandonment schema. Other examples mm. are shame. Another one is social isolation. So I find this one 
particularly comes up a lot with people that struggle with substances and alcohol. So there's the belief that someone doesn't fit into the world, that someone doesn't belong. So they have this belief that they're better off socially isolated. A big one, and it's worth saying now that everyone that has problems with alcohol has is a schema called insufficient self-control. What that means is that someone isn't actually able to control. This is the belief system. I can't control and I don't have to control the impulses that I have. And Mm. if I get frustrated, I can't tolerate that frustration. So I'm not going to control the frustration and I'll use alcohol to manage or eradicate the frustration. Can I ask a question, Ben? Is it a conscious belief? Like, does someone actually go, oh, I can't control myself anyway, so? No, a lot of these are unconscious. I think people have some awareness around them because quite often schemas are attached to behaviours. So say, for example, someone with, there's another schema here called the self-sacrifice schema. Okay, so that's where people believe that in order to matter, they've got to put other people's needs in front of their own. Would a people pleaser kind of fall into that schema as well? It would, it would. Mm. <laughs> and they, people feel guilty if they put their own needs in front of others. So what happens, the behaviour attached to that schema is is the actual people pleasing. And the behaviours that we go into are known as modes in the therapy. And people get really frustrated and they get low self-esteem and they become resentful because they end up in this behaviour or this mode of people pleasing. And in actual fact, no one's meeting their needs. They're meeting everyone else's needs, but no one's meeting their needs. And yeah, it's very much a one-way street. And I'll find that people that spend a lot of time in this self-sacrifice schema end up with really high levels of stress and anxiety. Yeah, because they're not getting their bucket filled, so to speak, If to simplify it. And they're, they're just, if you're giving out, but you're not filling up, then what's yep. left? Yep. And the best mm. for some people, the way they manage the stress and anxiety is to throw some booze down their throat. Mm-hmm. So your original question was, what are some of the drivers of people's drinking? And I think you can go across those realms that I mentioned before around negative beliefs, around attachment problems, around big T, small T trauma and other life events. And what I really like about schema therapy is that we dig right into someone's upbringing and the major events that have happened in their lives. And then we assess their thoughts and their beliefs about themselves, like a formal assessment. And then And then that assessment allows us to have a look at, okay, what schemas are you pinging up on? And invariably there's, depending on your personality structure, there's between five and 15 schemas that are quite elevated, that are really present in people's lives. And then associated with those schemas are sort of destructive type behaviours that people engage in to try and manage. And I'm finding that a really effective means of to understand the drivers of people's behavior for drinking for taking drugs for avoidance behaviors in, in anxiety for like a lack of motivation in depression and then for all sorts of relationship concerns that come up where people are really really triggered in their relationship and they kind of don't understand why they're triggered so yeah it's really really informative and enlightening and it's funny because the initial part of the work is quite conceptual like we're understanding your thoughts and your beliefs and and those are concepts but the actual healing occurs when we go back to whatever experience has happened in that person's life and connect to the fucking pain and it is really painful 
Mm. When we are there with our trauma or with our pain, experiencing it or being with it again, it is so healing, I guess, when we let it all kind of process and move through. I know it has been for me. There's so many different modalities in which we can kind of be with that pain. Tell me how through schema therapy, when you are re-experiencing that pain or, or just acknowledging that pain, what's part of the process of working through it so that you can have healing? Yeah, look, at I, there's a few different ways. Like the theories, the strict theory, that they have a thing called image re-scripting where people go back into the image of what happened in the past and then almost re-script it in terms of their beliefs around the image. Other strategies within it, uh, people do chair work where you, you sit the client in a chair and you get them to go back, uh, go into a particular schema and really embody the schema to enable a, a proper connection to it. The method I'm seem to be using is is using EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And that's like a very formal trauma treatment modality. I find looking it kind of combines the two approaches that I mentioned that, that are already part of the theory or part of the therapy it's yeah so I'll, I'll do a proper emdr process on a schema to help someone uh, like you said just go back into it be with the pain associated with it and i guess move from a really negative belief about yourself around that event or those events to a more functional belief doesn't always have mm. to be positive can be functional mm. and like the key as well as doing that i think a lot of people are really afraid of the pain and will do almost anything to avoid it and i think I think a good and important part of my role and any therapist's role or anyone that works in this realm is to be able to make people feel safe during that process and hold them and not physically hold them, but energetically hold them through that process of, of reconnecting to the pain. And like EMDR, the, one of the words in the title is desensitization. So you, you become a bit desensitized to the pain, which is what we want. Mm. Oftentimes too, these things that we're trying to avoid so desperately, they're not that bad once we're actually there with it. And especially if there is someone holding or guiding us through that or creating a safe enough space for us to be able to go there. It's never as bad as what we think it is. It can be a bit icky, I guess, but yeah, if you're in good hands and you're in safe hands, I think it'd be a really beautiful process actually. Yeah. Amazing. I love that you're doing EMDR too. I'm really fascinated by that. Bessel was talking about that quite a lot, the EMDR process. I know people in my family who went through the bushfires down in King Lake and certain people that I know that went through that did the EMDR process with some therapists and found it really helpful as well. Pretty amazing. What if it's sort of pre-verbal stuff or stuff that you can't remember, like it could be something, maybe if there was trauma when you were in your mum's belly or if something happened to you when you're a baby, but you can't quite remember it, but you know that it happened. Would that still work? Oh, wow. Good question. I'll answer it, but cautiously. I feel if I had a client present with a trauma that happened like that, rather than try and get them to find a slither of memory way back then and they, they, they wouldn't be able to, I'd get them to find an event where that they can actually remember. Mm-hmm. And and then I'd probably come up or devise with the client some beliefs that they would have developed from that experience. So say, for example, a mother was part of domestic violence when the child was still in utero. Generally, what a child takes in there is high anxiety and trauma from the mum. The sort of belief there is I'm not safe. Mm-hmm. Which would set up, um, you'd imagine, your nervous system to fire a bit differently and perhaps would then create anxiety. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So like our nervous systems are ultimately shaped in the first five years of life. They change, but our nervous systems learn based on the environment what they need to be. So yes, absolutely. Like the people's nervous system would be highly anxious. The belief there would be, I'm not safe. That'd be my starting point with the person. And we'd find instances in which that belief has precipitated in their life or come to the surface in their life and work away at trying to help them be a little bit okay with that anxiety and pain and and then develop a, a slightly more adaptive or functional belief. Like I can be safe or whatever that might be. Yeah. Yeah, or I can create safety for myself, perhaps. Beautiful. Yeah, you know, but I'm yep. an adult or something like that. Mm. I mean, that's one of the big things, isn't it? It's certainly in compassionate inquiry through that framework, going through those stepping stones, identifying core beliefs that have been created through experiences that we may have had in childhood, and then identifying how they drive our behavior in adulthood. <laughs> so, I, yeah. yeah, I guess that once we learn, we understand our core beliefs or our beliefs about ourselves, once we see them, because oftentimes they're driving us, but we're not even aware that they're driving us. Yeah. And look, I love telling people this, but some of the listeners may be slightly abhorred by this news, but quite often with the insufficient self-control schema, there's another schema that's attached to it. And that's known as the entitlement or grandiosity schema. And I (laughs) I know um, a few people with that. (laughs) And I do find people are like, what? Don't tell me that. <laughs> and uh, and I, I laugh because I've, I've got it, as well as having the insufficient self-control schema. It's really important to understand that people develop something like an entitlement schema as a defense mechanism against the opposite. Some people develop it because they had parents that did have boundaries or they were, had parents that were quite indulgent, but more often than not, I do find it's with people that in order to protect themselves from shame, they develop a bit of an entitlement schema. And definitely with, with excess or dependency on alcohol, in order to keep that dependency, people will develop a sense of entitlement to protect it, to protect Ooh, the boobs. Wow. Yeah. And that's what fascinates me doing the schema investigation work with people, because you're right. Like a lot of the time, we're kind of like not really aware about these layers that exist and how they operate in in our day-to-day lives. And it's utterly fascinating. And I see people like just come alive and go, oh, (laughs) for the most Mm -hmm. part, like sometimes you can feel a little bit criticized by the labels, but I think it's important just to understand that they're protective on some level. Yeah, they're our little protectors. Mm. Even addictive behaviour is a protector usually because yeah. it was trying to protect us from feeling some kind of pain or that's my understanding of it anyway. Yeah, I think, and I'll just add, I find, like because the exploration is slightly negative and what I mean by that is we're looking at dysfunctional beliefs and, and what I find is that the goal is to actually develop more functional beliefs. And the good thing is most people already have functional beliefs developed. There's spaces in their lives in which their values are really important to them. And they have some really lovely self-beliefs and beliefs about this environment and the society around them and the community. And that's what we use. We, we leverage that to kind of start to, I guess, start the process of healing the the maladaptive beliefs, but also parenting the maladaptive beliefs. So yeah, it's, it's, there's two sides to it. It's not all looking at the negative. It's not all 
kind of going, oh, my God, I'm, I'm so flawed. It's like going, all right, well, this is what's causing your problems and this is what you've got in your toolkit that seems to be working and let's enhance that. I just love the fact, even though it seems scary, but when we do recognize our perceived flaws, for me, it's really liberating because it, you understand, oh, there's a reason why I act like that. Cause usually a protector kicks in. Anger is a, is a protector or is for me. So one of my core beliefs would be perhaps, and I don't know what scheme of this is, but in terms of identifying beliefs was that I'm not important. And if I feel not important, my protector that kicks in is anger. And that's one of them. Or before yeah. also it could have been, or I'm not good enough, then my protector there would be to drink. Yeah, and yeah. so once I can understand if say anger shows up and I feel a bit of shame around that perhaps later or in hindsight, or whilst it's happening, I can actually go, oh no, I can take that back to that core belief that I've had. And then I can understand it. And then it sort of drops the shame for me and it just gives you understanding. And so understanding is liberating. It is liberating. And and look, uh, the great thing about that example that you've provided there is the anger that we go into is actually the second half of the therapy. So that I'm not important is usually either a defectiveness, shame type schema. It might be a subjugation schema where we put ourselves below other people. And invariably, those two will trigger a mode, which is called the angry child. That's what I love about it. We can kind of go, okay, well, what, what behavior did he go into a response to that? And either the angry child or, or the undisciplined child, which is very much the pick up the booze, this will solve the problem. Um, mm. That's what sort of also amazes me about the framework that these guys have developed is that it encapsulates a lot of what we struggle with day to day, both from a belief system perspective, but also a behavioral perspective as well. And all of it is sort of based on life experiences rather than, oh, we've got to change this thought. It maps everything back and provides a really clear kind of channel of where a lot of this stuff is developed from. Amazing. So for you, obviously, because you to understand this work, you would have done a lot of this on yourself. Have you found it helpful to you in identifying your own behaviours, perhaps through seeing those schemas? Yeah, for sure. Like there's been things that have popped up in the last year or two for me, you know, around relationships. And I have been able to, through understanding my schemas, that there's certain fears coming up for me or whatever it might be or expectations and then try and address them. And I think too, like even when I felt overwhelmed at times, I can go into a pessimism schema. There's a negative train of thought when I'm, when I'm overwhelmed and which really drives my mood down. And just identifying that, I've been able to arrest the negative thoughts I was having around it and go, all right, well, that's the impact on my mood if I go down that path and this is what I need to do to arrest it. So I advocate for it because I've found it works really well for me, but I also advocate for it because I've seen such a positive response from clients Mm -hmm. using it. So. Amazing, Ben. So I guess anyone that's kind of wanting to do work on themselves doesn't matter where you sort of fit into the scale of things, whether it's been going through addiction or you're just depressed, or even if we've got rid of the addiction and now the underlying work begins to, here's my experience too. I find that you get the alcohol out for a certain amount of time. And for one thing, I know I was working with someone recently and they're experiencing a lot of anxiety. And so we were wondering if it was the alcohol that was fueling the anxiety or if there was an underlying anxiety issue that then they'd have to go and perhaps 
sync therapy for. We tried for say a month, I think it was four weeks without alcohol to see how things were sitting in them. Cause I find that most people in my experience, I don't know what you would say about this, but after about a month, 21 days a month, oftentimes anxiety is really a kind of most of it's gone or 80% of anxiety seems to have kind of dissipated. If someone's still experiencing really chronic anxiety after having a month off alcohol, then I'd say they've probably got an anxiety disorder and I'd then refer them on to a therapist for sure yep. um, to go and deal with that. But even still, even if you don't have chronic anxiety, but there's still oftentimes once the alcohol's gone, there is then the opportunity. That's when the work begins to start working on our stuff and whatever was driving that alcohol addiction or perhaps maladaptive behavior that was there. It, I guess it doesn't matter where you are in the schema, <laughs> schema in the scheme of things. <laughs> there's always, I believe that therapy is a, such a great next step forward, particularly after you've taken out the alcohol and okay, then there's the opportunity to see what's there for us and perhaps what might be lying underneath. Yeah, no, look, really good point, because I would expect people three, six, nine months after they've stopped drinking, for them to be starting to feel pretty agitated, maybe a little bit disillusioned with sobriety. And usually it's not because the sobriety is not working. It's because that next level down analysis or, or investigation or whatever you want work needs to be done. And I and I don't think it requires like a year's worth of work. I think it's really important that people like come in, have a look at some stuff, do some deep work, and then go out and live and use the knowledge of what's happened in the deeper work to navigate life and then come back later on if they need to when, when other stuff comes up. Unless someone's stepped into their purpose when they've gotten sober, oh, no, even then I still feel like you've got to do the work. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I just, yeah, I actually feel like it's just part of the process. Like, and it's going to help you if you, when you get rid of the booze, stuff's going to come to the surface that you've been covering up with the booze. So it makes perfect sense to have a look at it. Yeah, I feel like it's so important. And like you say, it's not like it's something you have to keep doing like all the time, but go and get some therapy sessions or get some sessions with someone, work on something. And like you say, you go away, live your life, and then things start popping up. I know for me, things pop up differently at different times and, and certain modalities have worked really well for that particular thing that might've popped up for me. And I'm trying different modalities all the time, which is great. Like trying yeah. different forms of therapy and different things that work. It's never usually just one thing that works and I love therapy and, and working with different modalities I think it's really interesting yeah it is interesting and I like humans are complex beings and we've talked about thoughts and behaviors or beliefs and behaviors in this podcast but sitting underneath all that stuff is our nervous system which is either wired towards depression or wired towards anxiety meaning it's either wired down or wired up, or it might bounce around all over the place. And when a lot of that's based on our past and being out in nature absolutely regulates those things. Like it, it's such a, the senses, the five senses, I think have a huge bearing on, on how our nervous system is regulated. So there's that part of the work. There's physical exercise and diet that become part of the work and different strategies within therapy itself. Like you said, different modalities that I think pop up to people when when they should as in they present mm. to people like all right oh someone's just told me about like a psychodynamic theory or or inner child healing type work and i'm gonna head down that path and do some inner child work and it's important to explore it all 
Absolutely. Because now I'm thinking, hmm, I'm going to go do some work on schemas now. <laughs> I'm going to go book in with someone and work on that because I find that could be a really fascinating next step. And it's true too. And it's like what we said at the start, things present to us. So perhaps go down that path for a little bit and see where that takes you. But this, it sounds really, really fascinating what you're doing. I love it. And I just love that identifying our beliefs about ourselves. And I just know that oftentimes our beliefs about ourselves, I'm not good enough, just seems to show up all the time with people, seems with people I work with. I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. I'm not important. I'm not lovable. All those things. It's pretty unbearable to think those things about yourself on a cellular deeper level. And no wonder that we're driven to drink or driven to external mechanisms to kind of soothe that. It's really hard. I've got those beliefs. And if I'm really run down, they come to the surface. And yeah, I really empathize with people that have got them and because they're hard, hard to be with. Absolutely. I know if I'm not being compassionate to myself, if I'm not doing some of my daily practices, they can start to creep back in again and start to control my thinking a little bit. I can feel my nervous system go out of whack a little bit. It's usually the first sign. And then that shitty thinking starts and it's bloody awful. I'm glad I don't go to alcohol anymore, but I go to other things. I might go to food or work or other forms of distracting myself. So learning to be with those and perhaps select a more helpful belief or thought about myself is helpful. What are some of the things that you do once you've identified this schema and the behavior that might go along with that? Can you give an example of obviously EMDR, but what else would you offer to someone? Yeah, I spoke to a woman this week and and a particular schema was coming up for her, which results in agitation and fear. I've just got her to put her hand on her chest and her tummy and Mm. to take deep breaths when the schema comes up because it's important, I believe, Mm. it's really important that it's not just cognitive. You're not just going, oh, I'm having this thought. Mm. It's come from here. Oh, I better change it. It does require some type of sensory and grounding that needs to go in conjunction with the cognitive restructuring that happens. So there's nothing kind of, for some people, it's doing that, like hand on their chest and hand Mm. on their tummy. For some people, it's getting their feet in the sand on the beach and just walking barefoot. Yeah, everyone's got slightly different things that are really effective to help them. So it's uh, depending on the person, there's usually some type of sensory intervention to help them just be with that discomfort. Oh, I love that you're using the two too, that it's not just cognitive stuff, but it's Mm. also that kind of the self-regulation through the senses. I think that's... Mm. Yeah, yeah, I find yeah. for me, I find that really, really helpful, yeah. especially the hand on heart, hand on chest. I just find that mm. a really beautiful way. If I'm getting a bit dysregulated or my nervous system's going a bit up here, it's just a nice way to just bring myself back into alignment and back mm. into a more grounded place. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome, Ben. So you've got the best of both worlds here that you're doing. So that's really freaking awesome. So obviously you're you're open for business and I know your books are filling up, but could I offer that out to the podcast listeners that if people wanted to contact you, are you doing yeah. work through Zoom? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I do, I do do some one day a week of telehealth. So yeah, if anyone's interested and you want to just have a bit more of a read, I've got a website which is just benshillerpsychology.com.au and surname's S-C-H-I-L-L-E-R. Yeah, I'll put that in the show me, notes. You'll find my email and the mobile number in there. So by all means, get in touch. 
Mm, I think that, yeah, it sounds absolutely amazing and so excited for people that they can reach out to you and, and get have the opportunity to work with you, especially because you've lived it as well and you all this work that you've done on yourself and all the education, but you've been doing that on yourself as well and using it to aid your own recovery and, yeah, just to become the epic human that you are. Oh, I'm not sure about that, but, yeah, it is good work and I'm really passionate about it and I feel pretty blessed to have stumbled into to it like someone someone steered me down this path and I'm more than happy to pass it on yeah amazing that's awesome Ben thank you so much is there anything else you'd like to add today no that's all thank you for having me wonderful to be back on again Oh, it's so good to see you. And I just also I just wanted to, again, like I think I say this to you every time, but I just also want to express my gratitude to you. I know when I first was toying with the idea of not drinking and you were such a great supporter of that and just your non-judgmental way of being and even talking about thinking about going into coaching and first talking to you about that and nervously telling you about that. And you've always just been so supportive and non-judgmental and just like, yes, go for it. You're such an awesome human. And and so inspiring. And so I just also wanted to, especially hitting this million downloads today, you know, this week as well. And even talking to you about the pod, you've just always been so supportive. So I just really wanted to express my gratitude to you and, and to our friendship and to thank you for being part of my journey. You're awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Danny. Thank you. Appreciate it. That means a lot. And ditto. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks. I'm ben. very red here. <laughs> I'm very red. <laughs> Oh, it's good. It's good to have a gush fest. All right. Thank you, my friend. It was really awesome to talk to you. And I'll put links in the show notes if anyone wants to reach out and get in contact and have some sessions with you. I think that'd be awesome. Thanks, Daddy. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, ben. See ya. Bye. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.